A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 96, Shudder. When I asked you for questions at the end of the century, several listeners wanted to know more about the Bulgars. Listener G's query sums it up well. How did the Bulgars get so good at beating up the Romans? Was it just a combination of luck home field advantage and Roman arrogance? Or was the Bulgar kingdom a better organised state than I'm picturing? The Bulgars, as you know, were from the steppes. They were pastoral nomads. They had no fixed home. They moved from place to place depending on where the best grasslands could be found. They lived off their herds. Moving slowly around with their livestock was their existence. When they crossed the Danube to escape the clutches of the other great tribes, they found a unique situation which might allow them an independent existence. The area they first settled in, Roman Scythia, today known as the Dobruja, is a relatively small patch of the same grazing land they were used to on the steppes. But it was nicely isolated from the rest of the tribes by the Danube to the north and the Black Sea to the east. Only a hundred miles or so south lay the Hemus Mountains, a natural, defensible frontier that could protect their southern flank. The leaders of the tribe soon realised that, with the Roman Empire preoccupied by the Caliphate, they had a real shot at carving out their own kingdom. The key to their survival was to manage these two borders. During the 8th century a combination of good fortune and military skill, made sure that no threat grew too large in either direction. To the north, the Avar Khanate dominated the future Hungarian plain, but were too lethargic to attack their southern neighbour, while the Byzantines were busy getting the snot kicked out of them by the sons of Abdel Malik. Things began to change in the middle of the century, when Constantine V marched north and invaded on several occasions. This was a serious crisis for the fledgling state. The Roman Empire was far larger and more powerful than their neighbour. With a concerted effort, the Byzantines could conceivably wipe them out. The Bulgars were committed to their independence, though. 
You may remember that they repeatedly changed leadership during these years, killing or deposing Khans who were thought to be too passive. The storm eventually passed with Constantine's death and the return of raids to Anatolia. So why then could this much smaller state keep pushing back its larger neighbour? I've just hinted at two of the major reasons. One, the Bulgars had picked a good spot. The Hemus Mountains are much steeper on their southern side than their northern one, so climbing up into them from Thrace is arduous and exposes you to attack. This forced the Byzantines to usually follow the coast road where the mountains were at their lowest. This allowed the Bulgars to see them coming and prepare early for battle. Two, the Romans needed their armies in Anatolia. When a good commander like Constantine was given license to transfer men west, the Romans could bring their superiority to bear. But this was not often possible. I think number three is the key to Bulgar success, though. They never forgot where they came from. The Bulgars were horse archers, just like Attila and his Huns. All things being equal, they were the best fighters in the world. Riding horses every day from childhood, no one could match them for speed, skill and flexibility. Even a fully trained Byzantine cataphract, whose armour could withstand arrow fire, would not be able to catch the steppe rider in open country. What tended to happen to steppe tribes once they established a settled kingdom is that they abandoned their former lifestyle. I imagine most of you have listened to Dan Carlin's series on the Mongols. Once the riders have defeated their sedentary neighbours, they settle down to enjoy the fruits of conquest. Within a generation or two, they've forgotten the hard life in the pastures that made them such formidable warriors. They become just like the sedentary people they live with. This is what happened to the Avars, and why Charlemagne was able to crush them. In a century or so, the same fate awaits the Khazars. By 800 AD, the Bulgars had some of the trappings of a settled state. They collected tribute from the Slavs and Romans living in their lands. They handed out court titles, somewhat in imitation of Constantinople. They had a capital at Pliska. But their ruling elite maintained the lifestyle of the steppes. Pliska was a winter retreat, not a fortified city. Every spring the riders would head out with their herds for the Dobruja, or indeed cross the Danube and make use of the grass there. This meant that despite adopting some of the strengths of a settled state, the Bulgar warriors did not become soft. This core of elite cavalrymen is what maintained their independence. Now these skills were not enough on their own. They had to be used to maximum effect. When the Byzantine army was at full strength, they could comfortably outmuscle the Bulgars in a pitched battle. Listener GG and Ben from the Italian Unification podcast both asked how the Romans would fight the Bulgars and whether their tactics differed from when they fought the Arabs. 
As far as we know, Byzantine tactics didn't change a huge amount. The standard setup was as you'd expect. Infantry front and centre, cavalry on the wings. The Roman horsemen would aim not to chase the steppe riders, knowing that this would lead only to misery, so various efforts were made to get close to them and either charge them or force them to fight hand to hand. The big advantage the Byzantines had, aside from numbers, was that the Bulgar infantry were usually poor. They were mostly comprised of Slavs, who were lightly armed, not always well trained, and certainly not disposed to fighting pitched battles. If the Romans could meet the Bulgars on an open plain, where their superior discipline, armour and numbers could be brought to bear, then all would be well. What the Bulgars excelled at was refusing to allow this scenario to play out. You may recall that the very first battle between the sides in 680 saw the Romans surround the Bulgars and prepare to squash them. But when Constantine IV withdrew from the campaign, panic spread and the imperial army routed. Now the Bulgars might have just breathed a sigh of relief and watched them go. But no, they chased after them, mowing down anyone they could. It was this ability to capitalise on Roman indecision that made them such an effective force. More recently, you may recall that Constantine VI, desperate for a legitimising victory, got trapped in the fortress of Marcelli in 792. Without a plan, he broke out and sought battle. The Bulgars were on him the second he did, and slaughtered the ill-prepared enemy. Last episode, of course, the same tactics served them beautifully as they fell on the army at the Strymon River. So the difference between fighting the Bulgars and the Arabs comes down to size and strength. The Romans have more or less given up trying to fight the Arabs in the open. The men of the Caliphate always outnumbered them. If they don't today, they will next year. Whereas the Bulgars could be overwhelmed. Because the military power of the Bulgars was built around its steppe warriors, the size of its armed forces was limited by the amount of grazing land available. If the Khan wanted more riders, he would need more grass. The only proper grass available was north of the Danube, and once tribes had settled there, it was very difficult to make them bend the knee to faraway Pliska. Similarly, the tribal system of the steppes was built on the settled populations paying tribute to their overlords. The relatively poor Slav and Roman farmers of Moesia, the old provincial name for the Khanate's lands, didn't have a huge amount to give. They offered up food and artisanal products, they served as infantrymen and bureaucrats, but it just wasn't a wealthy land. It could only offer the Bulgars so much in terms of financial support, and therefore it was difficult to expand beyond the base which existed. Based on the amount of land they had, historian Panos Soufalis estimates that 12,000 soldiers is probably the best the Khanate could manage in one campaign. And that's based on a ratio of 9,000 infantry to just 3,000 cavalry. In part, this is because to be fully effective, steppe armies tended to have spare horses ready to go, 
so that they could keep fighting or fleeing when their current mount became exhausted. So you needed spare horses not being used and stable hands to look after them, and therefore also not fighting. The Roman forces in Thrace were far inferior to the steppe riders, so usually 3,000 of them were more than enough to keep the border quiet. But now Nicephorus had put out the call to the 18,000 men of the Anatolian armies and demanded that large contingents come west to help him overwhelm the enemy. In spring 811, they began to cross into Thrace and gather at Adrianople. Nicephorus wanted to assemble the largest army he possibly could and crush the Bulgars. We don't know for sure what the emperor's plan was, but it certainly seems like the mission aimed to at least establish a Roman presence in Bulgar territory. We think this because practically the entire court went with him. His son Stavrakios was present, his son-in-law Michael Ragave, his most trusted advisor, the former quaestor Theoctistus, even Aetius, the eunuch who'd been Irene's chief advisor, came along with dozens of other officials. The emperor seems to have wanted them to bear witness to his triumph and perhaps be on hand to help draw up plans for how to reincorporate Moesia into the empire. It has been suggested, though, that the Vasilevs knew the campaign might last several months and wanted no sedition back home, hence inviting so many key men to come with him. This idea gains some credence from the fact that before he left, he ordered Theodore and the rest of the Studite monks to be released from their two-year exile and return to their home. By the time he came back as a conquering hero, no one would care about their various gripes with him. The troops assembling at Adrianople included the theme of Thrace, and as best we can tell, men from all the Anatolian themes. Presumably more came from the Thracision, Obsikion and Bacalarian, while the Anatolicon and Armeniacon must have had to leave some men guarding the border. Nevertheless, a giant force was gathering. Around May, the emperor left Constantinople with the whole of the Tachmata, including a new regiment called the Hikanti, made up of the sons of the capital's noblemen. This cadet troop had been commissioned to ensure a loyal corps would slowly grow within the elite regiments. It's impossible to say exactly how large this force was, but we assume it was in the fifteen to 20,000 range, given the rest of the details of the story. Though we should remember that many of those assembled were not fighting men, and I don't just mean the officials, I mean all the contractors, slaves and valets who helped feed and equip an army that needed 144 tons of provisions every week. Once they reached the border, the whole army encamped near Markelai as scouts climbed up into the mountains to find the best route into Bulgar territory. Looking down on the vast horde below were agents of the Bulgar Khan, Krum. We don't know much about 
Crumb's origins, or his relationship to Kardam, the previous Khan who traded barbs with Constantine VI. What we do know is that Crumb was a charismatic and astute military leader. A Khan had to lead his armies personally. He had to show strength or risk being deposed. Even in their darkest hour, the Bulgars didn't abandon Crumb, so we can assume he inspired confidence. With the Avar Khanate in ruins, Crum had spent the last few years leading raids onto the plains looking for loot and slaves. He'd also made contact with the remaining tribes, who might be disposed to fight for a new Khan if he had money to offer them. Seeing the size of the Roman force, Crum sent word north and got reinforcements moving toward him. For now, though, the Khan knew that he couldn't make a stand against this giant army. So as the Emperor set up camp, he sent word that he was more than happy to hold peace talks. Nicephorus, though, was having none of it. He was here to win a glorious victory. Peace would come on his terms. Roman scouts now explored the various passes of the Hemus. The Bulgars had built defences all over the mountains, earthen ramparts and stone walls covering narrow passes, or densely wooded tracks that hid concealed bowmen. According to the sources, the emperor sent multiple divisions into the hills before they would turn around and come back to camp. It seems like he was trying to draw out the defenders and confuse Crum about the invasion route. But at some point in July, the whole army moved forward for real. For an army the size of this one, picking one road would have been dangerous. Even marching in a straight line on good terrain, historian John Halden estimates that the back of the column would be 75 minutes behind the riders at the front. That was a recipe for disaster in the narrow mountain passes, so it's possible that the army broke into two or even multiple columns and then all massed again at Pliska. As I mentioned earlier, Pliska was not a traditional city. It was a winter camping ground. At its centre were stone and wooden buildings, a palace for the Khan, houses for the nobles and sunken dwellings for the rest of the population. But outside of that was a vast empty space for all the horses and other animals which lived with the Bulgars. About nine square miles of grass were cordoned off by a huge wall of earth. It rose about three metres high and had ditches dug on either side. But compared to the hilltop castles of the Taurus Mountains, assaulting Pliska was a piece of cake. Crum knew this. Everyone knew this. The Byzantines had sacked it just two years earlier. So the majority of the population fled at the news that the emperor was returning. Sensitive to the need to put up a defence this time and try to slow the Romans down, Crum left a full garrison behind to defend his home. But crucially, it seems he withdrew his elite cavalry with him into the mountains. Once they arrived, the Romans made short work of Pliska's defences, We don't know whether hundreds or thousands guarded it, but the sources suggest they were all killed or driven off. 
A relief force also engaged the Romans a day or two later and was similarly dispatched. The elite of the Byzantine military were fighting on flat, open ground, and they probably outnumbered their enemy two or three to one. It was never a contest. With his opponents either dead or nowhere to be seen, Nicephorus settled into Crumb's palace for a few days of celebration. On his previous visit, he'd failed to get his hands on the Khan's treasury. This time, his men made a thorough search of every underground store they could until they found it. Having learned his lessons from the rebellion at Sardica, Nicephorus began distributing the loot to every man there. He also cracked open the Khan's wine cellar and handed it out for his men to enjoy. Nicephorus knew that Crum was still out there somewhere, but with thousands of his men dead and his palace empty, it seemed like the job was almost done. According to our sources, the emperor spent the next few days discussing openly his plans for the future. Perhaps a new city could be built at Pliska to administer the recovered province. Nicephoropolis sounds a good name to me. After resting, though, the emperor ordered the army to head out into the countryside to ravage it. Pliska was burnt to the ground, and the army moved slowly west toward the mountains. Happily sacking every village they came across, the men destroyed farm equipment, took food for themselves, and scattered or killed the population. Nicephorus was hoping that his pillaging would force Crum out of the mountains into a pitched battle. Knowing that this was unlikely, though, he decided that he would make a leisurely retreat home and do as much damage as he could in the meantime. That would undermine both Crumb's legitimacy and his supplies. The essence of that plan, to cripple the Bulgar state, was sound. But unfortunately, the nuance of this strategy was not communicated to the army. The bulk of the men were part-time soldiers, who had no experience of the Balkans. As far as they were concerned, the war was over. We just burnt their capital, and now we're stealing anything we like. The Bulgars are useless, and their time is over. This laxity seems to have spread from the lowest grunt to the most professional of the Tachmata. Everyone let their guard down. After a few days of savaging the land, the emperor pushed his army into a wooded valley which led into the mountains. The valley was inhabited, several villages lined its path, and it had a good source of water, a meandering river which left marshy ground the closer to its source you got. This meant that the army could go on raiding and stay supplied as they prepared to cross through the mountain passes back into imperial territory. I've put a picture on the website of a similar valley in the Balkans today. Note just how thick the trees are on each side of the path. As his men found out over the unfortunate valley, a scout rode up hurriedly to the emperor to report that the path ahead was blocked. The direct route south led through a narrow defile, 
which had been blocked by the Bulgars. They had put together a highly stacked log palisade. Tree trunks had been felled, cut, and tied together before being stacked in rows across the rocky opening. On the other side, a trench had been dug deep into the ground. It was well constructed and not easy to dislodge. The fact that the whole army had wandered down this path without checking the way ahead is evidence of the laziness creeping into the Emperor's planning. However, Nicephorus doesn't seem to have been overly concerned by the obstacle. We should remember that his troops had already reconnoitred these passes on their way in. They had probably come up against similar barriers before, although the fact that the trench was dug on the southern side suggests it had been made by Crum recently, and that he may be nearby. The sources tell us that the emperor panicked or went into a depression, crying that there was no escape. But this seems very unlikely. The other end of the valley was not blocked, nor was this probably the only way out. It just happened to be the main route home. Nicephorus may even have been pleased to see that the Bulgars were nearby. Even if they took up excellent defensive positions, he had the numbers to blast through them. Perhaps this was the chance to kill off the last few remnants of Crum's moribund empire. It was the afternoon when this news reached him, so he ordered the armies to camp by the river for the night. Decisions could wait until the morning. This is where the emperor truly failed. Not wanting to alarm his men, he didn't pass on the news of the barricade. He doesn't seem to have told anyone to be on the lookout for the enemy either. He didn't even take extra precautions in building a marching camp to protect himself. Repeatedly, in Byzantine field army manuals, the importance of marching camps are stressed. You must, must, must dig proper ditches, erect walls, and post sentries. Commanders who don't are dismissed as the rankest of amateurs. It takes real skill to make an army complete complex manoeuvres in battle. But any fool can order his men to build a proper camp. It seems that the Tachmata and the various theme commanders just didn't think the Bulgars were a threat anymore. Each group set up its camp for the night, well apart from one another, along the course of the river. Above them, in the tree-lined mountains which surrounded the valley, Crum was watching. His reinforcements had now arrived, not just Avars from the north, but Slavs from the west. Between them and the hardcore Bulgar elite, he felt he had enough men to attack. And not just men... According to one source, he armed the women amongst his forces. No one would stay behind. The Romans misunderstood the raison d'etre of the Bulgars. The strength of their enemy didn't lie in their cities or their villages. It lay in their elite corps of warriors and their exploitation of their terrain. Crum could have let the Romans leave licked his severe wounds and hoped that some crisis in Constantinople would distract them. But Nicephorus had done such damage that their very existence was imperiled. They had to attack now 
and ensure that the Byzantines would never come back. If Nicephorus had taken the coast road home, Crum would have had no options, but by marching through the mountains he presented the Khan with a slim window of opportunity, and he took it. In the middle of the night, Crum gave the signal, and his forces came sweeping down into the valley and made straight for the emperor's camp. Because of its finery, the imperial tent was easy to spot, and Crum had one goal, kill Nicephorus and hope that panic would sweep away the rest. The half-defended camp was easily overrun, and soon officers of the Tachmata were woken from their dreams by the sound of screams and metal on flesh. Hundreds were hacked to death before the troops were able to form up and provide better resistance. But with no time to put on their armour, it was a futile effort. The cream of the Roman army began to fall in droves, and the emperor Nicephorus was amongst the slain. He was probably in his early sixties, and had ruled the empire for nine impatient years. Once the initial shock was over, men began to regain their senses, and realised that there was no way to make a sensible stand in the darkness. The remaining men of the Tachmata grabbed their horses and galloped into the night. Their first obstacle was the meandering river and the boggy ground it created. Unable to see this, in the pitch black, horses began collapsing into it, hurling their riders into the stream. As everyone was fleeing in great haste, the men following behind now tumbled on top of them. The Bulgars, trying to create maximum panic, chased after them, slashing at their backs, sending more men tumbling into the river. Eyewitnesses said later that soon their escape was made possible by crossing the impromptu bridges which their fallen comrades' corpses had made. Roused by all the screaming, the theme troops did start waking up and donning armour to investigate. However, when the first riders appeared from the imperial camp, news that the emperor was dead and the Tachmata overrun caused instant panic. The inexperienced theme soldiers didn't have to be told twice and began running pell-mell out of the valley. You had two options, head north or south. South was the way you wanted to go, but it was closer to the sound of screaming men. But north meant going back the way you'd come. You know, the land you just destroyed, which now will have no food to sustain you as you try to take the long road back via Pliska. Many headed south. It was the obvious way to go. But of course, they now came across a large wooden palisade blocking their way. They kicked it, they charged it, they shot arrows at it. It wouldn't budge. Some despaired and abandoned their horses and climbed over it. But on the other side, they now discovered the huge trench. Some discovered it as they dropped into it, and the sound of cracking limbs soon convinced their comrades that this wasn't the best solution. Amidst the blind terror, someone used their brain and was able to set fire to the palisade. However, patience was thin under the circumstances, and as soon as the barricade toppled over, men began piling through it. Of course, their weight soon crushed the remaining structural integrity, and they tumbled into the trench below, where they were soon crushed by the desperate footfall of their fellow soldiers. However they could make it out of the valley, the roads of Thrace were soon busy 
with the shell-shocked Roman survivors. As you can tell from that description, the Bulgars were not manning the barricades. Kramer diverted all available manpower to his assault, and he'd been richly rewarded. Joining the emperor in death were dozens of high-ranking men, including the eunuch Aetius and the prefect of Constantinople. All but one of the commanders of the Tachmata fell, the Stratikos of Thrace and of the Anatolikon, the Hikanti, made up of young noblemen, was hit hard. Stavrakios, the emperor's son, was wounded near his spine. His loyal men carried him all the way to Adrianople, but he was paralysed from the waist down. Many troops did make it out that day. Probably large divisions maintained their cohesion by being camped the furthest away from the initial assault. Next week, we'll catch up with them as they coalesce back in Thrace. But of course, the defeat was a terrible shock to everyone. The high mortality rate amongst the capital's brightest and best made a deep impact on the people of Constantinople. Those who made it home described how easy things had been until they entered that valley. How they'd brushed the Bulgars aside only to wake up one night in hell. Such tales were enough to lead even the most rational men to wonder if divine displeasure had turned the tables on Nicephorus. No wonder then that in the coming years the morale of the army will look shaky at best, and Crum will become a bogeyman akin to Hannibal in the minds of the European residents of Byzantium. Speaking of Crum, according to Theophanes, the Khan had the emperor's head cut off and displayed to his cowering prisoners. Once it had dried out, he had it cleaned up and lined with silver. He would then toast his victory by drinking from Nicephorus's skull. There is no way to know if this is true or not. All I will say is that Theophanes is our only source for this. He hated the emperor, and he and George had doubtless read their Herodotus. And what did the father of history say about the tribes of Scythia a thousand years earlier? That occasionally they would turn their enemy's skulls into drinking bowls. I'll also add that Crum had many Romans working for him, both defectors from Serdica and just plain Moesian Christians. That may have had no bearing on his victory celebrations, but it might have. What became known as the Battle of Plisca was a complete disaster for the Roman Empire. We'll get into the wider ramifications in a second, but just from a military point of view, a couple of historians make interesting points. John Halden argues that overall leadership was more important in Byzantine times than it had been during the Roman Republican era. Back when an inexperienced senator might suddenly be put in charge of a major campaign, the Romans could rely on their non-commissioned officers, their centurions, tough, experienced men who fought professionally for years to help steer the army. They could help make up for poor leadership at the top, but in our era, the average soldier was semi-professional and not really used to campaign life. 
it was therefore imperative for the commander to set the right tone, to monitor behaviour and morale carefully and keep his men ready for every eventuality. If the armies had been on the alert and dug proper marching camps, things could have turned out differently. The Romans still outnumbered the Bulgars massively. If they'd kept their cool, they might have extinguished the Bulgar state then and there. Nicephorus therefore has to take almost all the blame for the casual attitude his men showed, which led directly to their defeat. Military historian Edward Lutwak, meanwhile, says that Nicephorus should never, ever, have taken his whole army into the mountains just to get them home. It was the emperor's complete lack of a theatre strategy that cost him. Either he should have sent his men in to smoke Crumb out, or he should have taken the coast road. Leading his army en masse into the mountains was a huge mistake no matter what then happened, because mountainous terrain allows the few to suddenly compete evenly with the many. So no matter the circumstances, the emperor's ignorance would have cost him something. The key, of course, to the Bulgars' victory is that they played to their strengths and saved them for when they really needed them. Crum was willing to sacrifice whatever it took to maintain his most vital assets. The Romans, who followed a similar strategy in withstanding the siege of 717, should have known better. The political consequences of the battle were immense. The Byzantines were now afraid of the Bulgars. Not literally afraid to fight them, but definitely afraid to lose in a similar manner. This put them in a negative, defensive frame of mind and squandered the chance to deal a telling blow against them. This is crucial because of the brief window while the caliphate was submerged in civil war. As soon as the raiding resumes in Anatolia, the chance will be gone. The result is that the Bulgars will press their advantage and colonise northern Thrace and Macedonia. By the time the Romans finally get their act together and conquer their neighbours, 200 years will have passed. It will be too late then to fill the peninsula with loyal subjects. The Bulgars will have their own written language and their own sense of national identity. In the meantime, the Romans will return to arguing about their icons. Only the icons could explain the amazing loss of favour that saw Nicephorus become the first emperor to die in battle since Valens fell at Adrianople. 433 years earlier. The struggle to distance themselves from this shame will lead to a new ban on icons and then their restoration when the backlash comes. 50 years of navel-gazing that we have to lay squarely at Nicephorus's feet. Foolish as he was, Nicephorus was on to something. The Byzantines were recovering, and if they'd crippled the Bulgars and pushed on with their repopulation of the Balkans, there could have been great long-term benefits. Instead, Nicephorus stunted his own people's development. The clear divine displeasure which his defeat betokened thoroughly discredited all of his policies. 
his successors will be quick to give away his savings and ignore his reforms. Fortunately, some of his tax policies and his new themes in Greece would survive, but he would get no credit for them, and the pioneering spirit he temporarily returned to the Romans was buried in the mountains. Of course, Nicephorus sort of had this coming, didn't he? At every turn, he courted disaster. He suffered three army rebellions, one from his officials, and if they'd had any power, all those provincials he forcibly relocated would have done something. The emperor was clever and ambitious, and in a way, ahead of his time. But by refusing to show any patience, he angered everyone around him. If he had returned, smug from victory, is it possible he still would have caused his own downfall through his disregard for caution? Maybe. Certainly, dying the way he did was the worst of all worlds. Not only did he destroy his own legacy, but he crippled his son, who sadly will not reign for long as a result. Comparisons between emperors can be crude, but Nicephorus reminds me of none other than Justinian. Both men worked in the palace for years before taking charge, and then exploded out of the blocks with a huge range of policies. Both taxed heavily to fund wars of reconquest, and bullied their own officials and clergy into doing their bidding. Both seemed in a hurry to see glorious projects realised as soon as possible, rather than letting them settle over time. But Justinian survived the Nika riots that so nearly saw him dethroned, and he didn't need to lead his armies in person, which could have saved Nicephorus. Our emperor, then, doesn't leave behind an Achaea Sophia or some other monument to his achievements. Instead, he handed his successors a poison chalice that would leave Byzantium in turmoil. Next week, we will see the sad last few years of Nicephorus's dynasty. With the army's confidence shattered, Crumb will go on a rampage until a new emperor takes the stage to try and put the empire back on the right path. And by the right path, I of course mean iconoclasm. It's been a long while since I asked you to help contribute to the defence of the walls of the history of Byzantium Citadel. You've done such an excellent job. But with all this talk of the Bulgars advancing, I think it's time we shored up our defences just in case. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please come and bring some supplies to your loyal guardsmen. You know what they like most? iTunes reviews. Yes, strange tastes they have. But that's what they need. So if you haven't done one already, how about today? 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 